Damon Gelgut is a South African novelist and playwright who was awarded the 2021 Booker Prize for his novel, The Promise. He was previously shortlisted in 2003 and 2010 for the same prize. He writes longhand first, if that's of interest to you, rather than on a computer using a particular tortoiseshell Parker fountain pen. And he's done this for decades. Welcome, Damon, to the Bibliophile. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I really want to know about that pen. What, what, what can I tell you about it that would interest you? Well, I love writing longhand first as well. And I've looked all over for the right kind of flow. And it's a gel pen. It's a crappy little thing. I can get them at the dollar store. You know, I looked at 10 or $12 pens, and this one's like 2 or $3, but it works for me. I love how it feels. Like, I think it's just designed to get my thoughts out. Um, yeah, maybe they did specifically design that pen just for you, Nigel. It's possible. Or else, amongst all the various bits of um, writing wear available out there, you just happen to find the one that best suits your sensibility. I've been lucky in that respect, I guess. I mean, I have tried other fountain pens, um, and they do provide a certain satisfaction, but you're right. There's something about the flow of this particular pen that suits me well, uh, and its weight. Um, it sits nicely in my hand. It was also a gift from someone I was close to, so it has a certain talismanic property. But for all of these reasons, logical or illogical, it is the, the pen I always use. And uh, I think I would be quite bereft if it broke or if I lost it. I'm, I'm not sure what would happen if that day ever comes. So how old is it? I think it was given to me when I was 22. So I'm now 58. You do the math. It's a long while. What is the, the model number and all that? Oh, I haven't a clue. I've never, I've uh, never looked at the model <laughs> number. Yeah, but, but if it does break, you'd want to get one exactly the same, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's partly the fact that this was given to me by somebody specific. You know, replacing the model isn't going to replace that particular aspect of the pen. So I see. I, I'd okay. have to rethink it. I will right. say I've, ne I've never seen another pen like it in the last 20 years or so, so perhaps it's been discontinued, but certainly a good advertisement for Parker pens. Uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find the, the exact same model on eBay somewhere if you want. Uh, right. And I never thought of eBay. That would be the place. But I have no need to search for it just yet, and I hope I don't jinx it by even discussing it. Okay. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that it's, a, it's an emotional connection to this tool that helps you? Sure. But, I mean, you know, I, I have a fetish for stationery generally. I, I love the mess that pens make and the fact that paper retains the mess, you know. I do sometimes go back over old manuscripts and look at all the false starts and the twists and turns that I took and the little blind alleys and so on. 
Um, and it's kind of salutary because it, it does remind you that you tend to struggle with the same things every time and that the process you go through, which always feels unique and, you know, like a struggle you've never, never had to deal with before, uh, tends to be the same struggle over and over. So, you know, the computer erases all that. You, you, you have no track record yeah. of the journey you've been on. So the mess is a kind of a history and that's pleasing. Okay, so what what do you struggle with frequently then? What is it? In the writing? Yeah, you say you come up against the same struggles all the time. What are those? Well, you know, first drafts are kind of hellish for me. They always yeah. have. I, I really, I battle with almost everything. I, I, don't, I don't know the names of the characters, and that's assuming I have a clear idea of who the characters might be. I have to figure out, you know, the plot. I have to figure out what the plot means. I mean, in essence, a first draft for me is mapping out a journey. Once you've got the map down, you know, things become a lot more pleasurable. A first draft is a little bit, I know this is a mixed metaphor, having just called it a map, but a, a first draft is, is also a bit like, a you know, mud wrestling with a, an invisible enemy in the dark where you're you're trying to grasp at a shape, but you're just catching bits of it. So, you know, these are, these are not unique struggles, of course. But, no, I, no. you know, some, some writers have a pretty clear idea before they embark of where it is they're going. So I guess people like that will sit with their ideas in a mental arena and, and pin stuff down that way. I have to actually begin writing in order to be able to focus on the questions enough uh, for them to become meaningful. So... I dread beginning a new book because I know many, many yeah. months of mud wrestling lie ahead. <laughs> Can you talk to your unique struggles or not? Well, I mean, the, the, the I, I could talk in a more specific way, I guess, with the, the struggles that each particular book throws up. But I'm not right. sure that my struggles are that unique, really. I mean, I, I do a little bit of creative writing tuition at the local university here. And um, I always get a, a sort of a gratified look on the faces of certain students when I confess the things that I battle with because, you know, they identify, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure that any writer has utterly unique problems. Um, and it's always comforting to know other people are battling with the same, same things more or less somewhere. Okay, do you believe that you have to replicate reality accurately, as accurately as you possibly can in order to elicit a feeling or emotional response, the kind that the reader wants? Do you think it, you have to replicate reality in order to prompt that or not? Well, that's a big question. I'm not, I'm not sure how you replicate reality. I mean, reality is such a infinitely complex thing, um, you can only really gesture towards it. Maybe a better way of framing it would, would be to say, um, well, do I regard myself as a realistic writer? My, my understanding of reality is that it's absolutely unique and individual. In other words, all, all you have is your perception of reality. Now that is a different question. I can um, the real struggle with writing is to depict as accurately as possible what my perception of reality might be. But that is, 
you know, an entirely inadequate representation of what reality might actually be without, you know, me being there to perceive it. Yeah, but what's fascinating about reading is that in a way your imagination sort of helps you to to fill in the blanks so it does turn into a kind of a reality just based on what you've the words that you've selected and the order that you've put them in the experience that the reader has feels like reality so the and the question is <laughs> how do you, how do you do that well, I guess what you're trying to do is fire up, you're trying to fire up the reader's imagination in such a way that, that a certain version of reality springs up there. Whether it's the same one that I'm seeing when I, when I try to describe it is another matter. I mean, you will never right. know that. But the right. magical thing about writing is that with a, with a particular conjunction of words by creating a particular image, and actually it can, it can be quite skimpy on the page, a, um, a chance conjunction of a particular noun and a particular adjective, it does spark an imaginative reaction. So that's the magic of it. And if I conceive what it is I'm, I'm trying to express vividly enough, at my best moments, I think I, I do pick the right conjunction of particular words to evoke a certain flash of flavor, color, shape that reproduces itself in somebody else's mind. And, and that alchemy is somewhat mysterious, but it's also at the heart of books, why I love reading and, and why I love writing, I guess. Yeah, there is a mystery attached to it, of course. Why, why, why does a certain pungent, image have such a mental resonance that it makes a picture for somebody else or, or can create a, the illusion of a scent or the impression of an emotion in somebody, you know, and that, that can travel not only across big distances, but across time too. I mean, you read a book that was written 300 years ago and it can spark an emotional response in you. It is mysterious and probably should stay mysterious, but it, it's the reason most of us love words and books. Yeah, I think what, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to trigger something in us. Reading a, a, a sentence is going to trigger memories and emotions and that then sort of need to be imagined in an image. It's like you're, you're prodding this process. Well, sure. I'm not sure that most writers battle with this particular question, but it's something I've always bumped my head up against. And that's the sense that writing fiction is actually indulging in lying. In other words, you're making up people, conversations and events that actually don't exist, never existed, but you're trying to convey them so persuasively that other people believe they're true. And in fact, the standard by which writing is judged is precisely how convincingly you tell that lie. Now, I, I use the word lie as if there's a deceit or falsehood involved, but of course, right. you know, fiction is the lie that tells the truth. It is a fabrication, it is an invention, but that if you get it right, it strikes the sort of spark in someone else's brain that 
creates a scenario they recognize. In other words, something in their own life or yeah. memory responds, and in that sense becomes true. The words and the reality they sit on top of may be fictional, but the emotions and experience that they draw on and that they conjure in other people are authentic and real. Yeah, I've just read Chekhov's The Kiss. It's a great story. It's a great story. And I mean, I think it's talking to this as I can see it, because The Kiss is such a fleeting little thing. It's not even a kiss. It's to, you just hear the kiss. Yeah. And yet, look what happens in his head. It's He's reacting to it as if it was a torrid love affair. And then he kind of comes crashing down. It's It triggers all of this in his brain, doesn't it? Yeah, I. Uh, it happens to be on my mind at the moment because I just recently read an essay by James Wood in which he, he talks about that very story. He cites a passage from it where the, the officer who's received the kiss is telling the story at the dinner table to other people. And the telling of the story passes just in an instant. And there's a description of the, how the man feels, I guess the word would be disappointment, because it seems to him that this event is of such significance that it should take him hours and hours and days to recount. But in fact, it's a glancing moment, um, a story. So there's something of all storytelling in that, actually. The sense that, you know, a few words, which are in fact light, airy things, can stand in for a whole world. Enormous weight of reality is conveyed in something really quite abstract. You know, the thing is, it was such a tiddly little thing that barely even took place. And yet it's had such a huge impact on him. But he, as you say, he's disappointed because he figures when he's trying to convey it, he should do a better job of conveying how significant it was. But it just, it wasn't that significant. So I'm just thinking, you know, there's definitely something going on there, commenting on what the writer goes through. It's like, you know, I want, I've got this great experience. I want to get it on paper and write it down so that someone else feels that. But, damn it, I just can't do it. What's interesting, just um, listening to you describe it in that way, is actually the fact that the man in the story written by Chekhov is telling his own story. So actually, there is a story within the story. But what, what Chekhov is actually conjuring, and which we mm. can all relate to, is exactly that kind of like fleeting nature of an incredibly significant moment. None of us were there in Russia at that particular time. I mean, it's gone, it's, it's past. And yet, even in contemporary terms, all of us know what it feels like to have a yearning for something and to have the yearning just briefly for a second come true and disappear. And of course, that feels enormous. It, it can do, especially if your yearning is very deep. But for other people, it's just, what, a glancing anecdote, it's gone. And there, there really is something of the ethereal nature of story, storytelling in that, um, both extremely heavy and extremely light at the same time. Yes. Well, he's uh, Chekhov's also, I think, just giving us a really accurate portrait of uh, how our mind works with things like, like passionate love, even though this guy didn't... <laughs> 
he didn't experience passionate love, but it's he's sort of reacting as if he as if he did. He wants it so badly that in a certain sense he has experienced it. I mean, he's he's experienced it in his in his longing and his imagination. I was going to say Chekhov's extremely good at exactly those little arbitrary moments of human psychology. I prefer him. In, I mean, I'm a great devotee of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, although I think Susan Sontag famously said you had to choose between them. I, I find myself equally devoted to both. But in fact, I think I might choose Chekhov above both of them in the sense that they are you know, measuring up to huge, profound themes about human life, very important. Whereas Chekhov's field of play is really the everyday, the inconsequential, you know, the, the arbitrary, which quite honestly is where most of us live our lives. Um, there's something very essential and very true in the light, offhand, intuitive way that, that Chekhov goes about telling a story. It, it doesn't have any of the momentous weight or the, the great self-importance of a, you know, a huge book like Crime and Punishment or War and Peace, but it's all the more significant in its own way for that. Yeah, I guess it speaks to sort of kind of the mundane every day. I think the, the impact of love, you know, how you react to another person, even just providing you with some kind of validation. You know, he's all animated when he goes back into the group. I guess it's what I'm getting at is in this very simple little incident, he's getting at stuff that's fundamentally important to us human beings. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think almost everyone can relate to the what you call the everyday emotions of a Chekhov story. Not everyone can relate to the great metaphysical wrestlings that Dostoevsky gets into, yeah. or you know, yeah. the great search for meaning that underpinned Tolstoy's life. I mean, of course, those are questions for most human beings too. But you know, on on the day-to-day -day level, most of us are just preoccupied with being alive and being human. And yearning for attention or love or... Sure. Uh, it's, it's that sort of tissue of emotion that we relate to um, in each other. And that, you know, defines us as human, I guess. So in order to be a really great work, does it have to touch on these, these things that are so important to, to the reader? Well, fortunately, I'm not in the business of deciding what makes any kind of work great. But I think, you know, we, we, we write... <laughs> but you're striving. Aren't you striving? You're striving for that. Come on. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not in any conscious way striving to be great. I'm striving to write as well as I can, which is a different matter. But yes, that, sure. Yeah, what, what that means is, um, well, what does it mean to, to, to write well? Um, at this point, it means a, a great many things. I mean, when I started writing, I guess I was um, drawn by the incredible pleasure of description in a certain way. It could be as simple as that, the sense that one can pin the world down by naming it. Yeah, I mean, one, one could get into, into a very convoluted complexity around that, but there is a very simple pleasure in using words well to try to convey one's sense of the world. But, you know, at this point, I've been doing this for, a, what, 40 years. And overlaid on that original passion 
in, in all honesty, I mean, there are deep grooves of habit. It would be way too late for me to change careers now. So even though one's passion might run out to some degree, habit keeps you going. And of course, a certain amount of technique. What I'm saying in essence, isn't that I've lost my love of writing, not at all, but that um, at this point, the original intensity of excitement that writing stirred has sort of cooled and solidified into a, a vocation, I guess. This is what I do. I know how to do it better than lots of other people uh, just because I've repeated it and repeated it. And so I keep doing it. But of course, whatever perceptions or insights I might have about the world, well, they, they collect behind my ability to express them. So yeah. I'm giving, you a, I'm giving you a very round and, and convoluted answer to a, a fairly small question, so I should probably stop. But <laughs> Okay, well, let, let me come in with uh, John Gardner from his On Becoming a Novelist to address what you just said. He talks about not publishing at any cost, but publication one can be proud of. And then he talks about fine workmanship. Art that avoids cheap and easy effects, takes no shortcuts, struggles never to lie even about the most trifling matters, such as which object precisely an angry man might pick up to throw at his kitchen wall, or whether a given character would in fact say you aren't, or the faintly more assertive you're not. Workmanship, in short, that impresses us partly by its painstaking care, gives pleasure and a sense of life's worth and dignity, not only to the reader, but to the writer as well. Right. Is there a question in there? No question at all, no. <laughs> Just want to toss, in fact, I want to toss out a few more of these uh, quotes from, uh, from Gardner and just get your feedback. And if you don't have any feedback, I'll just move on. Again, the idea with this interview, I'm hoping is to get a, a, as you as a great best practitioner, what and how you do it. Okay, well, no, I can certainly respond to that, that quote you've just read. And I recognize the truth of what he's saying. I will say that for, for me, that element of honesty and accuracy that he's referring to arrives at the very end a great deal of the time. That is to say, when I'm in the mapping out phase of early drafts, I don't bother so much with the exactness of what I'm expressing or how I'm expressing it. I, I just want to get the rough shape down, right? One of the things, one of the saving graces of writing is that you can return to it and refine it as many times as you want to. So, you know, although my instinctive impulse when I'm writing is, is to make it perfect first time round, and that's a good impulse to have. It never turns out that way, but it's really in the very, very final stages where you've got the shape of it and you're, you're looking, you, you, you start to look at it on, on a far more microscopic level. In other words, sentence by sentence, and it's then that it starts to matter. Is that phrase accurate? Is that word the correct word at that particular time? And, and that process of refinement provides a great deal of pleasure because there is pleasure, as I said earlier, in being, being able to name the word, to describe it and, and to feel 
that the word you found for what it is you're trying to say is the exact right word. There's a sense of a, a small internal click almost yeah. as something yeah. snaps into place. But those, those pleasures come to me anyway at the very end of the process. Um, there may be people you know, who need that accuracy and honesty right from the outset, but I, I don't think I'd be able to get out of the starting blocks if, if I was tied up um, with those notions right from the outset. I, I start with the large picture and I eventually arrive at the truth of the small one. And, th and that process is, has always been the same for me. Just to pick up on that, this is what Gardner talks about. He talks about the requirement of this continuous dream that, that you're trying to create in the, in the mind of the reader and, and the, the necessity that it be that it be vivid, not you know not cloudy or confusing, which is ultimately uh, you know which is ultimately annoying. Uh, if the dream is to be continuous, we we must not be roughly jerked from the dream back to the words on the page by language that is distracting. So, yeah. maybe you choosing the right word means it's not it's not bringing any attention to itself. That's an interesting um, distinction, actually, because I think in an ideal situation, the reader should not be aware of the words that are traveling into his or her mind at all. The words yeah. should, should be conjuring a version of the world for them, which, so to speak, they are they're observing and and hearing in front of them. The wrong word, um, as John Gardner, I think, correctly says, the wrong word will knock you out of that sense of being an observer back into the sense of being a reader where you're aware of the artificiality of what it is you're taking in. You're aware of the language and not of the, wor and not of the world that the language is opening up. So, yeah, I, I wholly agree with that. And yet, ideally, what you want is both. I mean, you want to be caught up in that world, but, and he points to the word fanatic may, may love certain very special, highly intellectual novelists like Stendhal and, and Flaubert. But I love those authors because of the, be the beautiful phrasing that they use and the apt pulling those lines out and then just savoring those as well as then going back into the, into the dream. It, I mean, you want both without screwing up the other. How do you do them both at the same time? Well, you know, um, obviously the reader is not helpless and, and absolutely passive in the, in the sense that if they're swept along by the story that they're, they're really, truly unaware of the fact that they're reading a story. Yeah, right. we, we, we do know we have, you know, a, a book in front of us and that we're engaged in the act of reading. But the pleasure of reading is in not being aware of the mechanics. For you or me and for a great many other people, once you've experienced it on that level, there is a second level of pleasure in examining the mechanics and how the hell did this person make this work? I mean, yeah, you, you can be in it and out of it at the same time. If you, I mean, I frequently read a paragraph and I'm moved, astounded. And then part of me wants to know, how did this writer move and astound me in this way? That's, yeah. when, that's when I become slightly 
detached and zoom out, as it were, and, and try to look at the mechanics of it. I think that's what dif would differentiate you as a writer from me as a reader. I kind of, I, like, I savor those beautiful phrases, and I'll write them down in my commonplace book. And I also revel in this beautiful world that, that's being created for me together with the, the author. But as far as sort of sitting down and saying, now, how did he do that? That's just too difficult for me. I don't, I, like, I don't, that's why I'm interviewing you right now. <laughs> well, but the trouble is, I think you would have a more accurate notion uh, a lot of the time than I would, which is to say that I think writers work off a, a sort of instinct, I think, a great deal of the time. Um, right. You know, if, if you had to break it down and, and analyze all the mechanical components and so on, that would be a very dry and arid way of, of creating um, a, right. a piece of work. You, you've got to be, it's your imagination and you've got to be working in a kind of a fever, which, which doesn't take away from the fact that there, there is, of course, a mechanical process at work and, and, and some detached part of your brain is finding the right phrase and finding the rhythm of the sentence and, and making sure that it, you know, it feels like it has the right heft and shape and, and all of that. The aesthetics of it matter. But the aesthetics of it matter only insofar as it makes it pleasurable for the reader um, and, and conveys what it is you want to convey. If you're writing purely to kind of impress someone with your pyrotechnics, all they're going to notice is your style. They're not, they're not going to be taking in anything beyond that, no? Sometimes it's enough, though. Like uh, Martin Amos' style is, and the laughs I get out of what he's saying, that, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a good amount to take away. That's value for money. Sure. I mean, I, I, I'm a big William Faulkner fan, right? Part of my admiration for Faulkner is, is that he works in a, he works with a bigness of language, a a, a gassy rhetorical grandeur of language, which is really out of reach for me. It's, it's sort of the, the opposite pole of what comes naturally to me. So I'm very impressed with people who can pull it off. And in right. Faulkner's best work, the language, even, even though it is blown up big, it's inflated, there isn't a sense that the language is empty. What you want is the sense that the reality the language yeah. is describing is still larger than the phrasing the writer has used. Whereas in Faulkner's weakest work, uh, it's not for me to say he's lost his way, but in, his, in the work that doesn't quite hit the heights of his best work, the language can feel bigger than its meaning. In other words, um, it becomes rhetorical. And I can, look, I can look at some of the phrases or the overblown language and still get pleasure from it, but it's not the same sort of pleasure that I get where you know, the meaning is working in perfect conjunction with the size of the language. I, I need to, I guess I need to go back to Faulkner because the sound and the fury, I just felt like I was in a fever. I had a fever when I was reading it, like an unpleasant fever. I didn't like it, but so many writers admire his work. Not, not everyone. Um, my friend Edmund White dislikes Faulkner intensely and, and says that um, all his writing feels, feels drunk to him. And I understand exactly what he means. There is a drunken quality to the writing. Um, <laughs> That's exactly what I get, is this sense that I'm in some kind of screwed up, fever-filled mind. 
Well, not every book's for everybody, I guess. And maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, Sound and the Fury isn't for you. I, I'll defend it to my dying day. I think it's very good. <laughs> okay, now I'm the common reader. Here's what Gardner says about it. the common reader demands some reason to keep turning the pages. Two things can keep the common reader going. Argument or story. Hmm. Both are always involved, however subtly, in good fiction. Yeah, I mean, that's probably indisputable, but I would have widened the net a little bit. Good story, meaning action, does hold people's attention and just on the level of, you know, wanting to know what happens next. So a good story creates that sort of vacuum of expectation, which, you know, the novelist will then fill. What was his other category? Please remind me. Oh, yeah, it was argument. It was argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, conflict is the raw material um, of fiction. So, you know, as, as Tolstoy said, all happy families are alike, whereas, you know, mm -hmm. unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. In other right. words, I, I take that as a, you know, um, a sign that conflict makes situations and characters distinctive and interesting. Yeah. And your attention is held until the conflict is resolved. So I have no argument with that claim by John Gardner, but I would say that, you know, those are not the only elements that keep you held by a piece of fiction. Strength of language, beauty of language can do it too. You know, and not only that, but a, but a certain clarity of vision, if I can put it like that. Um, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson doesn't have great conflict in it, doesn't have, you know, a, a powerful, fast-moving plot, and yet it's, there's a certain limpid, lucent quality to the philosophy that underpins the book um, that, that really holds you. And in my case, it, it, it was a, a hard-earned attention um, because it's a very Christian book, um, it's not the sort of thing I would I would normally turn to, but I was absolutely persuaded by the profundity of the vision. And I think it was that that held my attention right through the book. I mean, yeah, also beauty of language, although she's not using flashy language at all, but she's using exactly the right balance of language for what it is she's trying to say. So there's a there's a certain harmonious balance between the philosophy and the expression. And, and that also can, can, can carry you along. So to my mind, John Gardner's description is a bit self-limiting. I think, I think there are more aspects to writing that, that might hold you than those he's, he's put forward. Okay, so how do you match the language to your philosophy then? I mean, I know, you know, of course, you want to match the language to the, char the character and give them the right kind of tones and things to say uh, to make them realistic or believable or convincing. But uh, how do you then match, match your language to, do you want to convey a philosophy with your work? No, not, not in the um, sense of a coherent philosophy like that um, in Marilyn Robinson's work. I don't think, I don't think my worldview is necessarily that uh, coherent 
in itself. But when I say that the uh, a first draft for me is, is, is a struggle in every way, the most significant part of the struggle is in finding out for myself why I'm drawn to this particular story. You know, a, a book can usually begins for me with a sense of a character or a couple of characters in a situation that feels as if it has an inherent voltage. It has a, it has a crackle to it. Um, and the writing of the book is working out where that crackle can take you. So, you know, what the, what the implied potential of, of that um, situation is. In fact, this is Gardner here. Getting down one's exact meaning helps one to discover what one means. Exactly. I mean, in a certain sense, you're writing the book in order to find out why you've been driven to write this book. That answer to that question might be the last thing you find out in the writing of the book, in fact. But you do need to clarify that for yourself at some point down the line. Why, why have I been drawn to this? What has pushed me back and back and back to this same scenario day after day for however many years it's taken me to write the book? You, In some sense the unconscious has to become conscious and you need to define for yourself, that is why, that, that is what has compelled me to write this book. And when you've done that, um, it becomes a whole lot easier to pull all the loose alignments yeah. in, into one direction. So the clarity of language really, again, comes at the end where you begin to strip away all the superfluous bits, you, you refine. What you're doing is you're, you're putting the book together um, around the basis of a particular principle. And that principle is what has driven you to write the book in the first place. So I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds a bit fuzzy. It's not fuzzy. In my no, mind. I'm just going to throw in a, again from John here. He says, the shock of joy we experience when the right choice of wor words made us grasp the idea that had until that instant teased and eluded us. Right, exactly right. He's, he's put it better than I have um, and far more clearly. Again, it's that sense of an internal click when the meaning and the mode of expression come together in a way that you know fits exactly right. Yes, and you know, I guess the other thing that's that's so good is is once you've found, heard that click, you you know you you've selected the right detail, and uh, here he is again. The writer subtly suggests others. The telling detail tells us more than it says. The reader. So you've chosen a detail that tells me when I'm reading it tells me more than what you've just put on the on the page well very often what seems like a passing detail carries i, I don't know how to put it a, a certain color of emotion so it may seem incidental to the scene but if the writer is, is sensitive enough a particular image or a particular detail will be released at exactly the right moment and it it, it hits as it were the theme of the scene you talked about the naming significant detail or naming things. Good writers also depend at least as heavily on metaphor. Is that true for you? As heavily as, as what? As heavily as on the naming of significant details. 
Well, that, that is a very debatable point because there are quite a few writers who strive exceptionally hard to strip their, their work of all metaphor. Um, right. Because they regard metaphor as a, as a kind of um, untruth in a certain way or a, perhaps a distraction. I mean, I think of Samuel Beckett, who's a writer I, I adore, but, he, yeah. but his work is absolutely pared down to the bone. It's, it's really not um, carrying any burden of imagery or, or metaphor at all uh, and feels exceptionally, feels exceptionally truthful as a result. I know uh, J.M. Kutsia um, has expressed the same aspiration. So, you know, you, you could certainly make a case that metaphor gets in the way as much as it illuminates. So you could argue that, but uh, Flaubert is so wonderful at it. I know... Like right at the beginning of Madame Bovary, he talks about it's as boring as pavement or something like that. And man, that was that was sweet. Yeah, I, I read for that. Sure. No, I do. I do too. I mean, there are writers whose strength is in creating um, images, right? In in metaphor, and I guess if you have a facility in that direction, it can cover up. A lot of lacks. So, you yeah. know, um, yeah. I'm, I'm mistrustful of writing that's, that's overladen with, you know, evocative imagery when I sense that underneath it, perhaps there are other weaknesses, a, a, a lack of plot or indistinct characterization and so on. So I guess it's about a, a balance. I mean, yeah, I, I read for the pleasure of metaphor sometimes too, and there's nothing quite as... Um, satisfying as a well-wielded metaphor, you know, yeah. at, the, at, the right, at the right time and in the right way. So I'm, I'm certainly not set against them on principle. Okay, here we go. In the best fiction, plot is not a series of surprises, but an increasingly moving series of recognitions of moments of understanding. I guess the best sort of plots feel inevitable in a certain way. What you don't want is for the reader to be ahead of you, right? So, and, and that doesn't just apply to, to plot, I guess. It, it applies to any aspect of a novel. You, you need, as the writer, always to be staying one step ahead of the reader. I read an interview with Tom Stoppard a long time ago, and a phrase from that interview has always stayed with me, that um, he wants to always be um, ambushing the reader which is to say taking the reader a little bit by surprise. That can work on the large scale with plot. In other words, you know, your, where your story goes can take people by surprise and hopefully will. You don't want people to be able to predict um, where things are going because there's always a feeling of letdown on that level. But even on a much, much smaller scale, when you begin a sentence, you don't want the reader to be able to complete your sentence in their mind before they've got there. So, no. you know, you can ambush a reader even in a small way by taking a sentence somewhere unexpected. So I would say, you know, both on the large scale and the small, you want always to be nimble enough to be taking your reader a little bit by surprise. But at the same time, you don't want to be surprising them in a way that seems implausible. That's yeah. what I meant by, by, by saying that it's got to feel inevitable in a certain way. When something happens or somebody says something, you want, you want that sense of recognition in a reader. Ah, yes, that makes sense psychologically um, and 
you know, in terms of how the world works, it makes sense that that would be happening or being said right now, but not to see it coming. Well, I was just going to say that takes us back to this continuous uh, dream, right? You don't want to break that. Right. What does break the dream is any moment of incredulity where yeah. you, throw, you throw something in where somebody thinks, no, that's false, because you're immediately bounced out of the story and you're looking yeah. at it outside. The, the reader is resisting. Yeah, of course. And, you know, readers are right to resist. You, you have to win them over. They're willing enough to presumably pick up your book and embark on the journey with you. But I think it's absolutely fair that after 50 pages, if someone is unpersuaded or unengaged by what you've written, that they can opt out. I mean, I do it more and more these days. Yes, Life yeah. is too short. You, you, have to, you have to earn their attention and keep it, you know. Yeah, and Damon, that life is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Thanks for that reminder, Nigel. How very cute. <laughs> okay, so let's get to, get to character. Character is the very life of fiction. Plot exists so that uh, so the character can discover for himself and in the process reveal to the reader what he, the character, is really like. Plot forces the character to choice and action, transforms him from a static construct to a lifelike human being making choices and paying for them or reaping the rewards? Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, plot doesn't exist without character. You can't have a line of action without people embodying it, right? So, right. yeah, and, and how, do you, how do we judge character? I mean, in life as well as in books, you judge it by people's actions, I guess, um, and, the, and yeah. their motives in carrying out those actions. So. You see, I, I, character is a bit of a slippery concept because, you know, if you start looking at it too closely, you get into a whole Buddhist realm of inconstancy and the fact that our natures yes. are, you know, shifting yeah. all, all the time. In a certain sense, you're, you're catching at something that's like a piece of smoke on the air, but you have to make the smoke seem substantial in, in the same way that we feel people we know are substantial um, or yes. our own flickering inner lives are substantial, even though they're shifting and, and changing all the time. And the best way to pin character down, again, is through moments of behavior or action. That's where we reveal our motives and our yeah. desires. Yeah. I was at drama school a long time ago, and, and, and one thing that we learned early on is that people always want something when actors talk in that cliched way about what is my motivation, that's essentially what's being asked. What do I want at any moment? But it's true, we all do. One moment it might be, you know, a cup of coffee or, you know, you might want world fame, but we're always after something. It's what we do to satisfy our wants that sets plots in motion, I guess. Yeah, that relates to theme, uh, you know. Theme, basically, he says, is a elevated critical language for what the character's uh, main problem is. The problem is either that you lack something. Problem is that, well, something's wrong and you want to fix it. Well, plots generally um, revolve, I think, around a, the sense of some sort of rupture. The world's a certain way and then something happens to change the way the world is. Um, and we're bothered by this rupture and we want it to be 
healed, knitted up, resolved. And what holds your attention through the unfolding of a plot is the sense that this rupture in the world is in whatever way being stitched up or turned into something else. So, yeah, I, 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 I'd go with that. I mean, I, I have quite complicated um, ideas around resolutions in plots. I mean, I, I have this belief, which, you know, may be misguided, that novels evolved as a form of diversion for the middle classes. And as such, are meant to reflect middle class values back to, to readers. To try and control their behavior? Or? No, no, no. Books offer comfort and consolation to most people. In other words, there's a rupture in the world, but that ultimately the rupture will be sorted and that in some way people- yeah, But Chekhov, had, didn't, Chekhov doesn't do that at all. No, no, allow, allow me to unfold my argument and I'll-, I'll Yes, uh, sorry, I'll sorry. That. That's fine. Okay. I, um, you know, at its broadest and crassest, <laughs> that bad people will be punished and good people will be rewarded. Very um, good. A, lo a lot of people read with simply these um, satisfactions in mind. They, they want the consolation yeah. a book like that will provide. They want well, justice. Well, sure, we all do. But, you know, does it exist in the real world? That's the question, because the real world seems to me to be made of ruptures that are frequently never healed, not even understood. Bad people are frequently unpunished. Good people are not rewarded. But, of course, you can't construct books um, around these notions because they don't provide literary satisfactions. All they do is reproduce the world in all its imperfections. Very few people would turn to reading for any sort of solace, I guess. But I think as the tradition has deepened, people have seen ways, I mean, serious artists have seen ways to push the form closer to the way the real world works. So to my mind, um, there's a bit of a dance that goes on. You have to provide a certain level of literary satisfaction. There has to be a shape to a story, a beginning, mm -hmm. bit, and end. Mm -hmm. but okay. the end doesn't have to tie up all the loose bits, I don't think. Not all questions have to be answered. Um, and if you can successfully create a sense of mystery at the heart of your story, while still retaining the satisfactions of a well-shaped book, I think you've come as close as you probably can to um, depicting how reality actually works. Because, you know, to my mind, the real world does not behave with the clear edges or the consoling solutions that uh, a book does. You, you didn't ask about that, but I'm, I'm offering you these thoughts for free. Well, just to get back briefly to the kiss uh, he's he's looking at the fast flowing river at the end thinking this shit doesn't make any sense it's uh right and it definitely doesn't wrap anything up it it gets us thinking in a like in a in a way that's i i think very satisfying i i would absolutely agree but i mean chekhov is was a great artist and his greatness in part resides in exactly that, that he, he gives you the sense that what he's putting in front of you is very close to real life in its lack of resolution, in its sort of melancholic absence of answer. And yet he provides the satisfaction of a well-shaped story. So he, he's, a good, right. he's a good example. I mean, Tolstoy um, famously was 
kind of mystified by Chekhov's stories. You know, he said, oh, yeah. well, his plays, I think, in particular. So, well, you know, where does all this get you? You, you know, you, you, yeah. you move from the sofa, you know, to the, to the, <laughs> the water closet back to the sofa. But yeah. that's how life is, right? It's not, it's not the grand sweep of, of history for most of us. It's these small domestic movements that don't provide any particular resolutions or answers. Yeah, what's so great about Tolstoy is that he makes that, those kind of boring little movements uh, really intriguing because, well, they stimulate the kind of questions that we're always asking ourselves anyway. You mean uh, Chekhov? Or... Chekhov, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, say, you said Tolstoy. That's so oh, did I? Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I meant, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I there is a feeling of... I, I don't know how to put it, but that that Chekhov, Chekhov throws a whole bunch of people, absolutely recognizable personalities, into you know settings that we can all relate to. But there is also um, a sense of mystery in 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 Chekhov, which may come down to the feeling that all of this human activity, which seems to have you know so much intense emotion attached to it, it's mysterious in its incredible um, lightness and incompleteness. So yeah. it's those very qualities that make him profound because we can all relate to that. None, none of us feel we have answers to anything or that our, our, our lives are um, big metaphysical extravaganzas in the way you know, that Dostoevsky's characters live their lives. I mean, Dostoevsky was pretty intense. Maybe his life did feel to him like a, a metaphysical ride, but, but my life to me feels far more you know, arbitrary, offhand, and incomplete in the way of um, a Chekhov character, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this whole idea of incomplete, like his characters are also contradictory in a way that when you're trying to figure out what someone else is like, there is there is this character who's, they call him the setter. He's the one that apparently can tell where, you know, if there's women there. He know he can tell that there are women there. And, uh, you know, he's flirtatious and, uh, and supposedly a, a ladies' man. And yet Chekhov goes out of his way to say that he can't grow a beard. And, he's, and he actually calls him coquettish and stupid. And yet he's on the surface, he's this, he's this ladies' man, you know, confident ladies' man. So it's, it's like, you know, what the hell? Yeah, but it's it's exactly in those contradictory moments that people become most real. No, if you, yes. if, you if you write a character in which all all the traits, all the behavior, all the emotions flow in only one direction, that person is never believable. They just feel like a you know a kind of cardboard cutout. When somebody you've thought of as villainous suddenly performs a strange act of kindness or generosity their humanity suddenly becomes apparent and they, they yeah. become real, real for me anyway, in a moment like yeah. that. It's yeah. when people behave against their own grain that suddenly they take on three dimensions, I think. But it's about finding exactly the right moment and the right action. Um, and Chekhov was kind of brilliant. At that. Okay, I've only got a few more of these... Uh these lines for you so don't don't despair i'm not i'm not 
here we are. Every detail that enters the story will have an influence on the degree to which the characters suffer and eventually on what they choose. I find that a little bit of a perplexing statement in honesty. Why would every detail that enters the story affect the fates of the characters? I mean, some of the details that enter a story are arbitrary, I would have thought. Um, a great many details. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure, not, not having read the sentence in its context, um, what he means by that. You may have to answer that one. Well, it's funny because when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's exactly Chekhov. Like there's nothing in those stories. Now we're not talking about novels. We're talking about stories. But everything in those, well, this particular story that we're talking about, there's a reason that it's in there. It's not, it's not just observing some kind of arbitrary. No, no, there's a reason he's, like for example, at the beginning, there's a choice of what road to take. You know, that, so, so why do you put that in there? So, you know, like he's got you thinking about every single detail. Okay. I mean, but that seems slightly different um, than what I was understanding from, from I, I, I'm not taking issue with the way you've expressed it, but the way that no. John Gardner expressed it is slightly opaque to me. You mean the suffering, for example? For example, yeah. I mean, what would the color of flowers at the side of a road, which might be a detail <laughs> Chekhov throws in, what, what does that have to do with, you know, the suffering of a, of a character? So, maybe, maybe those were the color of the flowers at his mother's funeral. Yeah, maybe, but maybe not is the point. I mean, would it, would it be wrong to describe flowers um, at the side of the road if it was a detail that had nothing to do uh, with, you know, what's happening in the story. I mean, what I, what I do think is true is that every detail that has gone into the story has been considered and placed there by the writer. But that's not the same thing as saying that the, the fate of the characters um, is affected by those details. I'm not, that, that's where I'm slightly mystified. Okay. Yeah, I, I would join you there. We did touch on this, but in all good fiction, the basic, but uh, all but inescapable plot form is the central character wants something, goes after it despite opposition, perhaps including his, his own doubt, and so arrives at a win, lose, or draw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think most, most books, most writers, um, that's probably true. I have a little bit of a, um, a fascination with an alternative approach, I guess, which is to say that the traditional notion of a plot is that somebody wants something or does something decisive and it sets in motion a series of events. I'm, I'm talking right. in a, a general sort of way, but I'm really interested in the, the idea that at a decisive moment where somebody is supposed to act or declare something or, 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 or you know, take some decisive action. What happens if they fail to do that? If you, if you don't act at the moment where, you know, things are at a tipping point, it also sets things in motion, but it sets in motion perhaps a different sort of plot. An action is kind of an action then. Well, yes, it can be. That, that, that's the point. And it, but you could see it as a sort of unplot or a, 
a shadow yeah. part. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. I'm also intrigued by relationships that don't flower in the way that they're supposed to. So if, you know, certain actions or if taken would, you know, open up a relationship and set it on a certain course. If you're too timid or, or whatever your motive may be, if you, if you do not take the action that's required and the relationship never moves to the level that it, that it might have, it continues to be a relationship, but it's full of strange, repressed impulses and unspoken messages and, and emotions. That's very intriguing to me too. You mean a character's afraid to take action they just sort of sit in some sort of uh... well 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 to take a broad brush example but i i'm not i'm not thinking about specifically this scenario but if a character is in love with someone else and at a particular moment um in a traditional plot would kiss that person and put their relationship on a whole other level what if they fail to take that action the relationship continues but it has not become what it potentially could have. Instead, it becomes something that, that's full of unrealized potential, maybe resentments, maybe uh, repressed emotions. That sort of relationship intrigues me greatly too. Um, and it sort of runs in parallel with the idea that, you know, that plots are driven by decisive moments. If you, if, you, if, you, if you don't perform the kiss, if you don't pull the trigger at a particular time or say the word, what happens then? So I know I'm speaking in too general a way, you know, to be meaningful, but I'm intrigued by the notion of plots that, you know, follow from moments that might be tipping points, but that, you know, fail to tip. It's either a conscious choice or it's driven by fear not to not to make a move in that particular case. It's fear of rejection. That's why they're not going ahead with the kiss. Or it's just that they're not interested in that person. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a kiss is not the only possible action. That no, no, I'm just focusing in on, uh, yeah. of course. <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, a there are multiple reasons why humans fail to do things at particular times. And it, it, right. it may be, you know, uh, a limitation of imagination. It may be caution. It may be the fact that the character is simply too astute to take an action that they know would be destructive to them or to other people. There are, there are many, many reasons, but you know, the failure to take action also can set a plot in motion. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a woolly point, but I, I think the range of, of action should be extended to you know, the failure to act, as well as uh, the ability to act decisively. Okay. One last question for you, uh, or maybe two. How has being a novelist affected you day to day in your in your real life? Hmm. Well, um, to be a writer, I think in a certain sense, you have to be a kind of a spy. You're always holding part of yourself back in order to observe or eavesdrop on situations. So I guess it's made me um, more of a quiet bystander than I might otherwise have been. Somebody who's intrigued in what's going on around them without necessarily wanting to take part in it. 
but you could argue that you know those traits are true of me and um, that the writing followed on rather than the other way around. It's hard to know because you know writers are people like anyone else, and uh, they have various temperaments. They're yeah, no, I'm just talking about you particularly. Like, do you notice uh, what a flower looks like? Perhaps uh, like do you spend time doing that, or do you? It seems to me, for example, someone like Stendhal went out there and fell in love a million times and got, you know, he really, he kind of experienced a bunch of things and had a rich life full of experience that he then wrote about. Yeah, I mean, no, no one could say that, that Hemingway was interested in being a passive bystander. So, yeah, yes. it's, it's probably truer of me than it is of, of other people. Yeah, how has it informed your life? Oddly enough, I don't think it's a question I've ever considered. I suppose part of my brain is, is always preoccupied with how I might capture a particular moment with language. So yeah, I do consciously wonder from time to time about how I would describe something um, if I see it happening. How, how would you conjure that particular thing? And I pay attention to the way narratives work. I mean, if, if uh, be, be it a news item on TV or an anecdote, friends telling me, part of me is also paying attention to the way the story is being related. So yeah, I guess I guess there are aspects like those. But you know, I also think it's important for writers just to be people like other people because yeah. you know um, you can't regard humans as insects under the, the microscope. You you've got to throw yourself into the fray and understand it from the inside. Uh, if, if you want to, you know, account for it on the page. So I'm going to get back to you on this one, Nigel. <laughs> or maybe I've got, because I'm, I'm, it's, it's perhaps a question best left unanswered. If you if you started thinking about it too much, it might, you know, sh shut the writer inside. Yes, up. yes. I, I wouldn't yes. want to do that. Well, just from my own experience, uh, I, I like to have, have a fun experience getting out, traveling, meeting interesting people and interviewing them, and then recounting that experience. It's almost like I'm, it is, I'm reliving my fun experiences writing. Do you get any, anything like that out of it? Like, do you feel like you're reliving your life? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it relates to what I, I said earlier about the pleasure of naming things. The, the lived experience is, is raw, chaotic, uh, unprocessed, but there's a, there's a great feeling of pleasure in being able to transform a lived experience into a described one. So yeah, the, there is that, the feeling of containing what is otherwise you know, mercurial and, and borderless, of giving it a, an edge, a shape, a definition. You know, it's an artificial process, but, but it's, um, it's a pleasing one. The pleasure of it, accounts for why so many of us like to do it. There's no other reason really to, to turn yes. language, uh, to turn the world into language. Well, let me say, leading up to our conversation, I, uh, I relived, you know, we spent several hours together at your place in Cape Town. And uh, it was, yeah, it was just pleasurable to think back on that experience before having this one. So Thank you for this one. It's been it's been great to talk to you again. Thanks, Nigel. I, I appreciated the conversation. I'm glad we could reconnect after uh, 
an interval of a few years. <laughs> I, I hope we get to repeat the pleasure in person one day, but maybe Me not too. just yet. Well, I'll let you sign off, okay? How, how would you like to sign off? <laughs> um, who am I addressing? <laughs> the most important people in the book world, all around the world. Well, I, I don't have any grand um, uh, statement with which to bid people farewell, but um, if anybody has been interested enough in me or in books or in you to sit through this conversation, Thanks for your time. It's, it's always valued. I mean, time in a certain sense is what writers are after. It takes a long time to write a book, but you're asking time of your readers too to invest the number of hours required to immerse themselves in what you've created. So, you know, it's, it's not a small thing to ask of people. So I hope whatever people have got out of this conversation uh, has been reward enough. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope some of that pleasure conveys to the people that are listening. Very good. Thanks again so much, Damon. Thanks, Nigel. Bye for now. Bye-bye.